We are in John's Gospel today. We got a little bit of a late start, so um, let's try to get into this as quickly as we can. Can I ask you to please stand one more time for the reading of God's Word? This is John chapter 10, verse 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If you called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. God, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are in desperate need of your power, Lord. We're in desperate need for you to reveal again to us that our salvation is not of our own doing, but it is of you, that you are the one who has found us, that you are the one who by the power uh, of your spirit, by the power of your hand, hold us fast, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us to know these things, Lord, to know and to understand you and to continue to grow in our understanding of you, Lord, so that we might See how beautiful you are and want to know you even more, Lord. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, to read this, you know, things are not going well between Jesus and the Pharisees. Things are definitely cooling down, and John presents this literary beauty where he's saying it's winter, it's winter time. It's also winter time of the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees as they are writing him off 
Um, And yet, even in the midst of that, when he knows that they're trying to kill him, we find him walking through the colonnade of Solomon, which was the hot spot for the Pharisees to be teaching. And he's there at the very end of the day, the end of his day. He's there once more to offer to them this salvation that he's offering to all of Israel, even though he knows he's in fantastic danger from doing it. And, you know, as as we just read through the message, I'm sure probably most of you have, have, have witnessed to somebody or, or shared the faith with somebody and given, you know, good arguments for, for Christianity and had people not believe it, even though you had arguments that they weren't able to answer. I, mean, I, I told a story a while ago about one of my family members who um, was leaving the church, had been grown up in the church, raised in the church, homeschooled, I mean, everything their parents could have done. She's leaving the church. And we, we, she came over for, for dinner, and, and, and I gave her a rock-solid argument from the prophetic record that she was completely unprepared to respond to. And she left the house reeling in it, and then within a week, she was, had come up with some excuses to why none of that really mattered. And You know, when she sat down, the first thing she said was, I wish it wasn't true, because then I could do my own thing. And, I, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had just stopped right there and said, Never, ever underestimate the power of the will to override the mind. And that's what she was doing. Um, you know, people reject Jesus ultimately because they don't want to believe it. They perceive that the worldly cost will be too much. But for those who do and are willing to believe it, Jesus gives more than enough evidence and the promises that he gives us to preserve us through this life and into the next by the sustaining power of God, are so big and so beautiful that they're worth looking at and examining for unbelievers. But we don't get a pass on this ourselves either. We are not immune to to falling into unbelief and to falling into making up silly excuses as to why we shouldn't be following Jesus or why it is that Jesus isn't as beautiful as worldly sin X. We all fall into that. And so this passage tells us some fantastic and wonderful and helpful things about what to do when we want to run, essentially. And so the thesis, the big idea of this passage, the one thing that John, the one thing that Jesus wants us to know more than anything else is this, is that because those who belong to Jesus have eternal life through the persevering power of God, we should continue to grow in our understanding of the one whom he has sent. Let me read that one more time. Because those who belong to Jesus have eternal life through the persevering power of God, we should continue to grow in our understanding of the one whom he has sent. Let's work through that one little piece at a time. For those who belong to Jesus. Look at verse 24. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
You know, when we, when we do communion, we do something here called fencing the table, which is a, essentially it's saying, it's saying if you belong to Christ, you can come and take this meal. And if you don't belong to Jesus, then don't come and take this meal because there are serious warnings against receiving communion in unbelief. And we as pastors and elders of the church, we're responsible for people who come here to make sure that they don't receive an unbelief as best we can. I had, um, and I had a friend who contracted lung cancer, and, and he, came, he, was all, he was very willing at that point to come and talk about Jesus. He came to church, and, and communion came about, and the pastor uh, at New Life, where we were at, did the fencing of the table, and this man was just offended because no one had ever told him before that he couldn't receive communion, even though he wasn't a Christian. He believed things about Jesus, but he didn't believe Jesus in the way the Bible presented him. And so I tried to stop him. And, you know, we're sitting there in the, in the pews, and I'm like, what do I do? He's, you know, he's going to take communion. And ultimately, he did it anyways. You know? and, and what he needed to know more than anything in that point, at that point in the service was that there was a defining line going across the earth. And on one side of the line are those people who belong to Christ and on the other side, there are those people who don't. And he needed to know that so that he would know that he didn't belong to Christ, that he did not belong to God, not so that we could just rub his face in that, but so that he would see his need for Jesus and come on the other side of the line and accept Christ by faith as Jesus has presented himself to us in the Bible. And so what that tells us is, and what this first part of this passage tells us is, and continuing over from the last section we are in, that Jesus says there are those who are his sheep and there are those who are not. And the first category, throughout this whole, you know, throughout John, all the way up to this point, he's been presenting really the religious elites as those people who are not of Jesus' sheep and, and showing different aspects of unbelief, all the different facets of it to give us a wide-ranging picture of what it looks like to not believe and why. And in this section, he's showing us these people who are not his sheep, and they're characterized by two things. And the first one they're characterized by is the fact that no amount of evidence is enough for these guys. Listen to what they say. They say, if you are the Christ, stop keeping us in suspense. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, isn't it not remarkable that they would say that to Jesus after all that we've read through the last ten chapters? This is so far, this is what Jesus has told them. Let me put it all in one place so we can see what it is that they're um, calling uh, not plain, as it were. First, there's Jesus' words. Publicly, he's given them the mountain of evidence in his words. He's cleansed the temple, proclaiming to them that he is the new temple and that the old temple is fading away. His conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus that... that, uh, the way of salvation. He's working on the Sabbath and then telling them that he, as his father, are working all the time, making himself equal to God. He is the Son of Man, gives life to whom he will. He says that he is going to be the one who raises the dead on the last day. The authority at the last judgment is his. He is presenting himself as the true bread of life, which the manna in the wilderness represented. He is the fulfillment of that. He is the living water of salvation signified by the rock, the water flowing out of the rock in the the wilderness and also celebrated or remembered in the Feast of Tabernacles. 
He's able to forgive sin. He's presenting himself as the true light of the world publicly. He is the bearer of the divine name, I am. He's just presented himself as the shepherd and king of Israel and proclaimed himself to be the gate of salvation. And if that wasn't enough, he also has the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Father. He has the witness of um, the Scriptures, and also he claims the witness of Moses in the Old Testament, all proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And if that weren't enough, he has the witness of the works, these supernatural miracles that he's doing in his Father's name. And that's super important, because they're proclaiming like, if he's a wonder, he's obviously a wonder worker, but they're saying he must be a wonder worker serving Satan, and so we're free to kill him. But Deuteronomy 13 says if there's a wonder worker and then he tries to entice you to follow other gods, then you're free to execute him. But if someone is performing wonders and they're performing them in the name of the God Yahweh, they have no right to execute him. And so he's performing these miracles in his father's name. He's turned water to wine. I'm sure that got out. He healed the royal official's son. He healed the paralytic at Bethesda. He fed the 5,000 people. He healed the man who was blind since birth. All of these public miracles. And they come to him and they say, why are you keeping us in suspense, bro? If you're the Messiah, just tell us plainly. What more could he have said? Really, nothing. Nothing more he could have said. He kept pointing them back to the scriptures of the Old Testament, saying, all these proclaim me. You understand the Old Testament better than anybody. And, uh, you know, I think that what's important for us to know as Christians is that it's possible for us to give these airtight arguments to people and have them absolutely not believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe and no amount of arguing or convincing is going to convince somebody who does not want to believe it and does not want to accept Jesus for who he is. It's to change their mind. And so one of our professors at seminary used to say there are no altar calls in apologetics. (laughs) meaning that apologetics is a very different thing from evangelism, right? Apologetics is convincing and giving arguments. But we have to, we, I think it's helpful for us to face the fact that we can do the very best job we can and someone still doesn't come to faith. And that's not on us because only the Holy Spirit can change someone's heart. Only the Holy Spirit going before us can make someone come into salvation. In fact, we're just like the pickup crew. What God has us do what God has you do as evangelists or as people who have friends in the marketplace or families is to go through and look for where God may be working, share the gospel, talk about the faith, and, and that's what God uses then to bring people in who he has already been working on from the inside out. And so it's helpful because it relieves a lot of pressure on us. I mean, I remember a time in my life where I felt like an abject failure if I didn't get somebody to say the sinner's prayer in five minutes. You know, you put them in a headlock. Say the prayer. And that was unhealthy in so many ways we can't really go into right now, but what it does mean is that although we can't maybe not argue somebody into the kingdom, what we can do is we can pray for them. 
And so if there's people in your life that are blocking like that, we can pray, pray, pray for them and pray for them together as a church. We have a thing on our app. I hope everyone's unloaded or downloaded our app where you can enter names into the prayer list of people that we're praying for collectively as a church to come into salvation. The second thing is more difficult that characterizes these guys, and it's, more, it's a much more difficult theological prospect. So We can't go into it as much as I would like, but the cause and effect relationship between these men and belief is that they don't believe it because they don't belong to Jesus. It's not the other way around. They don't, it's not that they don't believe, it's not that they don't belong to Jesus, therefore they don't believe. It's the other way around. The cause and effect is presented to us is that first you must belong to Jesus. That produces belief. And then the more the belief then produces the ability to understand. And we're going to get a little, a little more of this in the third point. So keep that on the front sticky side of your mind. In contrast to that, though, are those who do belong to Jesus. And they're characterized in this passage by three things. And the first two are what we look for in interviews. When we're talking, when, mem- when the elders m- interview people for membership, we're looking for, the, for these first two things. And the first one is hearing. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, which is not just audible hearing. I mean, anybody can hear the gospel presented, but hearing it in such a way that they believe it. In other words, hearing God, the message that Jesus has brought about sin and reconciliation in such a way that produces an understanding of deep need. In other words, a deep understanding that I personally am sinful, that I personally am not measuring up, that I personally am not going to pull it off and make my way into heaven based on my own efforts. There's a deep sense of need that comes from hearing the message of Jesus. And the second thing is the sheep follow. And that means they have a deep understanding of the solution, which is Jesus and accepting, and, 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 and accepting Jesus' offer of salvation by faith alone, right? If you have a deep understanding of your need and the sin of it, and then Jesus is presented as the only true solution for that need, you're going to grab onto that and you're going to follow Jesus, The third thing that characterizes people is this. Is that Jesus knows you. Wouldn't you expect it to say, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. But that's not what it says. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And if you look here, I mean, in, even in John's gospel, we find that Jesus knew us even before we knew him. And we typically think about that as, as something that Paul would say, or Paul would say something about Jesus knowing us before the foundation of the world, or something like that. But if we look through what's happened so far in John's gospel, we see that the same thing is happening here. Jesus knew Nathaniel before Nathaniel had even seen him and told him so. John the Baptist confesses that Jesus was before him. The woman at the well, Jesus knew about her and purposely went way out of his way to go and meet with her. The paralytic at Bethsaida, Jesus went and found him and picked him out. 
Even Abraham, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, implying that he knew all about Abraham before Abraham knew him. And the man born blind that we just talked about, Jesus went and found him, performed the miracle, and initiated all of the action and brought all of those people into a saving relationship with him based on his prior knowledge and his finding him. And even everybody else, even Nicodemus, the royal official, everybody else, there's a sense where they're being drawn in to see and to meet Jesus. And so here's the big takeaway from that, is that even just because we get all confused about who belongs to Jesus doesn't mean that he does. I mean, we tend to be swayed by all kind of worldly things and worldly evidence and the people that look good must be this, which is the Pharisees, you know, thing. But the, but the reality is, you know, Jesus says, make right judgments, not according to the world, but make right judgments. And the reality is that we're being told here is that if you have a deep sense of need and a death grip on Jesus, abiding in Jesus, you can be absolutely sure that you belong to him and that he knows you and that he's known you from before the foundation of the world. And he has sought you out to persevere. So the first point, those who belong to Jesus. Second point, have eternal life through the persevering power of God. Look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, the other thing you hear a lot of times when you're witnessing or evangelizing with people is, is the total opposite of what I just said. On one hand, people will give you these arguments as to why it's not true. And then if you have the opportunity to explain to them a little better about what the gospel actually is rather than what it is that they believe it was, then all of a sudden they'll switch up and, and instead of offering an argument about why it's not true, they'll offer an argument about why it's too good to be true. This happened with that same friend of mine who took communion that day. He was diagnosed with, with aggressive lung cancer. And we went to lunch and we talked and we talked and we had a long, beautiful talk about what healing really meant. That healing was much more than just a potential 30-year reprieve for him. But that healing was something that was supernatural and spiritual that would last an eternity and that would also potentially bring in his wife and children so that his family would be in, ushered into eternal life and eternal healing. And, and then all of a sudden it switched up on him and he said, it's too good to be true. It's, you know, basically he said, look, I've lived my whole life like this and now I get sick and I'm running to God asking him to forgive me. Which in itself is this remarkable admission of knowledge right, when the chips are down and he really comes to grip with what's going on, he admits, I have ran from God my whole life. And now that I'm sick and I've got nothing to offer and I desperately need him to heal me and to save me, now I'm going to just show up empty-handed? And I said, yes, yes, you get it. (laughs) You get it. You weren't worthy of it two years ago. 
when your band was doing great and you had a, you know, when you were bawling, you weren't worthy of it because of that. You're not any less or more worthy of it now. That's the whole point. You know, but the truth is, it does sound too good to be true, but it's not. And this passage presents two things that sound too good to be true and cause all kinds of consternation in the church. The first is promise one. Jesus promises to give us eternal life as a current possession. Jesus is promising to give us eternal life as a current possession. Notice he doesn't say, I will give them eternal life right here. He's saying it in the present times. I give them eternal life. And if we survey back through John again and put everything all into one place and put it all in one basket, the same thing has happened. In John 1.13, Jesus says that salvation is coming from him. He is giving people eternal life, not based on man or the will of man, but on and of God. In his conversation with Nicodemus, he's saying that it's only by the power of the Spirit that moves which way, every way it wants to. Salvation comes to man as a current possession. And the woman in the well, Jesus says, I will give you eternal life. I will give you these living waters that will bubble up into eternal life. And in John 5, 24, probably the clearest one, he says, whoever hears my word, understands the need, and believes in him who sent me, sees Jesus as the, as the solution, has, present tense, eternal life. And then, to make sure we understood what he means, he goes on to say, he does not come into judgment, he will never come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. I don't know how much clearer you can be with that. If he's giving you eternal life, it's a present possession. We're no longer going to be under judgment, but we have passed from death to life, and that life is called by Jesus to be eternal, and then it's taken back. That was not eternal life that you possessed. It may have been eternal life in the abstract out here somewhere, but it wasn't a current eternal possession that you had or that you have. And we talk, I talk a lot, whenever I talk about eternal life, I always try to make the qualification that we're not just talking about an endless time on the calendar, that it's a quality of life, a quality of life that's characterized by the life of the triune God that we're entering into and it's characterized not by the sadness that we experience on earth, not by the loss, not by the suffering, but it's characterized by an everlasting joy. But it's also, it is an ongoing, never-ending calendar kind of thing. It will never end. It is forever. My new favorite definition of eternal life is forever joy. I say it to myself every morning, forever joy. That is what Jesus is giving us. That is what he's moving us into, even here and now. And how is it, how is it possible that we will never face judgment? How is it possible that we will never die? How is it possible that we will have and do have now this eternal quality life? And that is because the cross 
was our judgment and the cross was our death. You know, when Paul says that we have died with Christ, when Paul says things like that, he's not just talking metaphorically. He's saying that Jesus, as our representative before God, as our champion, as the second Adam, has completed all the work necessary for us to be with God forever. But when Jesus was judged on the cross, we were judged in him as well. And so judgment day for the Christian is not something that we're looking forward to at the end of the age. Judgment day is for the Christian who is in Christ already happened. We, have, we will not come into judgment. And when Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected again from the dead, that was our death with him. We may suffer a physical death, but our eternal spirits will never die because we are united with Christ in his life. And so it's not even possible for us to be judged because if God has judged us and our sin in Jesus, if he has judged Jesus for all of our wrongdoing, it would be unjust for God to then judge another person for the same crime. We have been judged in Jesus and our security is based on God's character. He cannot violate his character of justice. If he were to judge us for the same crimes he judged Jesus for and Jesus was punished for, that would be unjust. And we can never die because we are united with Christ and he has given us his life. We have now eternal life as a current possession. And it will never end. The second thing, the second promise is part and parcel of this. It's called divine, I'm going to call it dynamic divine perseverance. From the old, old theologians call this the perseverance of the saints. So the idea that God has promised to protect and bring people through this earth and into the next. R.C. Sproul likes to call this the preservation of the saints because it really puts the focus on where it should be, not on us and our ability to preserve or persevere, but on God and his dynamic ability to preserve and protect us through this evil age. Now, all kind of controversy about this, okay? And I get it, I get it. A big part of the problem is that in the current evangelical milieu that we're in, most of the time when people talk about, they, call some, they will call this doctrine eternal security or once saved, always saved. And the difference between that and the perseverance of the saints is where the focus is. In those, most of the time, in those manifestations of this idea, the focus is placed on the person, on your faith or your profession of faith, or something that you do. And I will grant you that if your salvation is dependent on what you do or your faith, you very well may lose it. In fact, you probably lost it at about 1.15 this afternoon for the fifth time this day. Perseverance of the saints in its traditional understanding is much different. It's based on the dynamic power of God to keep us safe from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil, our three enemies. That's outlined. John outlines those for us. 
It is not a static thing. It is not that it's not possible for us to, to bail on God or to bail on our faith or to leave Jesus behind. We still have that potential. It's just that God is wise enough and powerful enough to dynamically keep us safe and keep us in the faith. Look at the picture here. Picture that Jesus gives is two hands, right? He's first, he's saying, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And then the second thing he says is, my father who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Like this. The picture is of the Godhead, the triune Godhead holding us, holding us safe and holding us through his persevering power from this age to the next. And so the argument becomes, well, yes, but you could wiggle out of that, right? I mean, Paul says essentially the same, the same thing in a more poetic form. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8 when he says, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus suffered the cross for us, how would he not continue to save us and bless us through this life? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God is the judge. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The prosecuting attorney is our intercessor. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so people say, yeah, but you could walk out. You could walk away. Okay. You could. You know? Whenever I hear that, all I think is, okay, if externally all of my enemies are vanquished, and in my mind and my spirit and my soul there is no influence on me from Satan or the, or the world that is convincing me to leave the faith or to leave Jesus behind, if all my enemies are being subdued by the power of God, and that there's nothing high or low or deep or wide, present or past, that can outside of me come and strip me away from Jesus, and at the same time, internally, I am indwelled by the Holy Spirit and I am full of an understanding of the beauty of Christ and what he has done and who he is, that I belong to him, that he belongs to me, and that I am completely satisfied in what Jesus has done. If you want to say that in that position, on my best day ever, that I'm going to decide to walk away, all right, I suppose maybe. But would you? Would anyone? 
That's the dynamic nature of it. It's not that we're in a concrete box and that we can't move. It's that the wisdom and the power and the protection of God through His Spirit is so surrounding us that it's just not possible for us to get away because of His love for us. Because of His covenant commitment to us. And so you put those two things together, one and two, that Christ has sought us out, that he's known us from before the foundation of the world, and that he's brought us to himself, and he's given us the gift of current, eternal quality life. And that through the power of God and through the power of Christ and the Father in their hands, surrounded by the power of the Spirit, he will see us through this evil age and into the next, sometimes that produces rejoicing. We're like, yes, praise God, that's amazing. But sometimes it produces mourning. Sometimes it produces this deep-seated intellectual and emotional knowledge that God loves me and God is committed to me and God has purchased me from my sin and that God has given me eternal life and that God is going to see me through this evil age and then I look at my own sinfulness and I think he shouldn't. But he shouldn't. You ever feel that? And I've been feeling it this week. Just thinking about all the blessings that God has given me. Literally bringing me out of death and addiction beyond comprehension. Out of the lowest position you can be in in life in the North American hemisphere. And given me a whole new life and a beautiful wife and an amazing family and three beautiful kids and a purpose in life. And I see how unbelief and ingratitude just weaves its way through every part of my week and I think in this existential despair God shouldn't do this he shouldn't save me he shouldn't give me this eternal life why is he doing this he's too good you know if anything it's going to cause a Christian to run out of the hand of God. That's it. It's coming to grips with the beauty and the giving and the sacrifice of Jesus and what God has done for us and realizing our unworthiness and running because we can't handle it. That's what caused me to want to run away. You know, the Puritans, they had a response for this. They said it's not just gratitude and rejoicing and it's not just mourning. It's both together. You put them together. You know all about your black heart. The things you think about, the things you fantasize about, all the different ways that you want to, in your mind, murder and destroy God's creation for your own personal benefit. And you know all about your heart. 
But at the same time, you know all about Jesus and his heart. That he loves you more than you love your sin. And that's where growth starts. That a healthy understanding of both of those things together. Of who we are in and of ourselves. And yet who Jesus is and what he's done for us anyways. Holding those things in the right tension is what propels us forward in maturity and growth in this Christian life. That brings us to the third point. Those who belong to Jesus have eternal life through the persevering power of God and they continue to grow in the knowledge of the one whom he has sent. Now, we get to this point in this passage, once again, the rabbis are helping us out. They've correctly understood what Jesus has just said. When he says, I and the Father are one, another claimed deity, the experts agree, they pick up rocks and are ready to stone him and kill him on the spot. Look at verse 31. And so the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. But Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If you call them God's, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, if you're confused by that, take heart. This is one of the more difficult passages in all of the New Testament. What is Jesus talking about? He's claimed to be God. They're going to kill him. And then he makes this argument about from whom the word of God came. And the confusion, part of the confusion comes from what do, we, what, do we, what, do we, what do we understand this quotation that he uses to mean? He's quoting Psalm 82. Matthew read this earlier in the night in our reading of the law. Let me just read it again quickly. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now the confusion comes into who is he talking about when when God says, you are gods, what does that mean? There's two basic, two two possibilities. Number one, it's possible that he's saying these are men. These are the judges, the human judges of Israel, who are corrupt, and the divine council of angelic beings is met to pass judgment on these men. And so then the argument goes, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if these men 
whom the word of God came are called gods, how much more is it right and just for me to call myself the son of God is the ultimate revelation of the word of God. Maybe that's it. It's hard to understand how it is that Jesus would, would, would back up his claim to divinity and oneness with the Father by, say, by claiming something that any, all the Jews that he was talking to could also claim for themselves. Because they are all judges of Israel, more or less. They could also claim to be gods in the same way. How does that help his argument? The other option is that God is sitting in the council of the divine beings and he's judging the divine beings for corruption. And therefore, through some theological shorthand, Jesus is saying that he is a divine being, not just any divine being, but the co-regent of the divine council who has come to earth as the word of God, as the ultimate revelation of the word of God, much like he has the same way throughout all of Hebrew scripture as he appears as the angel of the Lord. I like that one better because it's got more woe factor to it. Ultimately, I don't think it matters because what the, the important points that he's bringing out by this are true for either one. And the two fantastically important things that he's saying here that he wants us to understand is that number one is that Jesus is telling them and telling us that he is the ultimate revelation of God on earth. He is saying, no matter whether it's, whether it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, those men are called God because the word came through them. So therefore, I, as the greater word of God, as the incarnate word of God and the ultimate revelation of, Jesus, of God, or if it's angelic beings and he is claiming to be the angel of the Lord who delivered the word of God throughout the covenant, the old and new, or old covenant and now into the new, He's saying the one thing that's super important is that he is the ultimate revelation of God on earth. And two, and I think this is really the big idea Jesus is trying to get into them. He's not necessarily trying to reassustantiate his claim to deity. He's reaching out to these guys, even now. He's in Solomon's colonnade. It's their territory. It's the place where they teach he knows that they are plotting to kill him, and yet there he is. There's no reason for him to be there unless he's there in the last hour offering off one more shot at these men to come to faith and to believe in who he is. And the big idea behind that is that Jesus is trying to explain to them, look, if you make any move towards me, it will be met by a massive mood of God towards you. Listen to what he says right after that that, that, uh, that path, right after, this is what he says. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then, don't believe, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, the word there for know and the word for understand is the same word kind of gets lost on us in English. But essentially what it's saying is know is come to understand. And understand means continue to grow in your understanding of who I am. And so what I think this means and what I think God is showing us is the humility and the beauty of Jesus coming to these men who are trying to kill him and saying, look, even if you don't believe my words, even if you can't believe my words, believe what you know to be true. 
believe these miracles that you have witnessed have actually happened. And if you do that, if you make that one tiny shift towards me in willingness to believe, it will be met by a massive move of God towards you to where you will be able to come into a greater and fuller understanding of me, what it means for me to be in the Father and the Father in me. There's a book that some of us have read which talks about God not making too hard of terms with those who seek him. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, believe, look at me and believe what you know to be true already. And if you're an unbeliever, if you have friends or families that are unbeliever and you're in those conversations when they're shutting you down, there's got to be something about Jesus that they're willing to believe, a next step that they're willing to take in understanding who Jesus is. And our goal is to bring them to there and encourage them not to be willing to believe what Jesus has revealed about himself. And the promise with that, the promise with that is that willingness to believe God will meet that. But for us, this is why I think it's important for us. And when we get in that spot and we are dismayed by our sin and just discouraged and thinking, why would God, why has God done this for me? And you, you have that feeling where you just want to run and just run deeper into your sin or you just want to run away from God and the goodness of God because it's too much. This also says to us that we can turn from that and turn and trust in the things that we know to be true about Jesus and that those little turns, those little moves towards him will be met with power from the Spirit. As we abide in Christ, wherever you're at, however bad it is, however good it is, the more as we turn to abide in Christ, the more we are going to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. And the more we understand who he is, the more beautiful he becomes And the more beautiful he becomes to us, the more we want to know about him. And we start an upward cycle of coming deeper and deeper into fellowship with him. So we're in that spot. Remember that Jesus knew you before you knew him, that he came and got you. And if you're sitting here right now and you believe in him, it's because he did that. Happened. And know that he has given you the current possession of eternal life. The fact that you are able to see your deep-seated need for him because of your sin and you recognize him as the only solution is the best evidence that you belong to him and that eternal life is currently your possession. And know that he promises to keep you safe as you transmigrate from this world into the next. And know that he is not surprised by your sin. He's not surprised by our sin. Jesus came to save us because of our sin, not in spite of it, because we needed him. And know that as we do this, he will continue to reveal more and more about himself and we will come into deeper levels of abiding with him. And that all of these things are demonstrations of his love for us and his covenant commitment to us because if we belong to Jesus we can rest assured that he will bring about all these things for us from this age and into the next amen
because those belong to Jesus have eternal life through the persevering power of God, we should continue to grow in our understanding of the one whom he has sent. Lord, our God, as we approach the table, we pray and we thank you that you have sought us out and that you are keeping us safe, Lord. We pray for those who don't know you, Lord. If there are any here tonight or any in our families and our friends, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be light to them and to encourage them to look at who you are with a willing spirit, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we know that there's nothing we can do to save anyone. All we can do is be ambassadors and emissaries and missionaries to people. And we know that your spirit has the power to bring out of death and into life. We pray that you would bless us by seeing dead people come to life through our ministry. We pray that you would fill this church up and then fill it up again and that you would fill this church with new life and that we would see a thousand people come to faith in your name. Lord, we are sometimes dismayed at our level of unbelief and ingratitude and the idols that we worship instead of you even though we know better, even though we know that those things are empty and lifeless experientially, even though we know that you are better and yet somehow we find ourselves returning again and again to help us, Lord, and deliver us from ourselves. Give us a better understanding of your beauty and perfection and help us to make those small moves towards you in our distress as you draw us into your forever joy and the power of your spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.